everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host this Saturday evening. I should probably start saying that I'm the host for this Sunday whenever it comes out. Pretend like we're doing it live, but maybe maybe that's wrong. But people might be listening like Tuesday on their lunch break, too. Exactly. So who knows? Anyway, thanks for tuning in to episode 97 of the Malthouse Games Podcast. I'm your host, Delton, and with me today... As usual, I guess, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. We're only five episodes away from the spooky music, folks. I had to think for a second. I was so confused. Yes, my slowed down, slightly altered. Spooky music. Yes. It's almost fall. It's almost fall. It's getting close to October. Spooky-tober. Everything's good. But yes, if you're tuning in, we are a podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, RPGs, things of that sort. And the occasional spooky music. I'm just really excited for fall. Riley texted me the other day and said we were only like X amount of days away from October. And I got really excited. I'm ready to watch scary movies a lot more and make you watch some of my favorites I've seen this year. Because you have to. Okay, does that mean in November, since it's my birthday month, I get to pick all the movies that we get to watch? Nope, because I don't want to watch those. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas every day for 30 days. On my birthday, twice. We watch it 31 times in 30 days. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. (laughs) Well, Deltonings, Deltonings, well, Delton is opening up our pickle beer. Struggling. Struggling. That's okay. I'm struggling to speak. Let's talk about what we did this week. What did we do this week, Delty? Uh, what did we do this week? Well, you got some news that we need to drink about. I got news I need to drink about. We talked about that last episode. However, it is coming up this week. So, as I talked about last time... I'm getting a second vasectomy, y'all, and uh, that's coming up. This release is Sunday. I go under Tuesday, and the rest of the week I took off to stay at home and rest as much as possible because I am baby and baby, and I'm going to need some rest and relaxation. You can find Delton on the couch and on this Switch. Yeah, if you want to add me on Switch, we can play some games together while I'm down. Uh, it's a friend code thing. Switch is weird. You have to have, a, have to have their friend code or have played with them. So just message me, message us, and I can send you the friend code if you want. But yeah, so I will be down and out playing Switch a lot and watching anime a lot for several days this coming week. So that's going to be fun. And I'll be off taking care of Delton for several days this week. Yay, time off. We need it. Don't really get to do what I want to do, but that's okay. Uh, You kind of get to do exactly what you want to do. Maybe not because of the circumstances that you want, but laying on the couch all day, playing your Switch and watching anime while being served food is definitely peak Deltonhood. Well, you're not wrong. (laughs) That's for sure. What else have we done recently? I went on a train trip. You did go on a train trip. I went to Fort Worth. And had a fun time with your sister. Had a very fun time. We rode the Amtrak train down, which is a... Relatively inexpensive way to travel. It was 62 bucks round trip, and that's about four hours down, four hours up. Riley and I had a grand old time. We went and saw cows at the stockyard. People were paying $5 to sit on a cow, and so we were trying to come up with a plan to bring some of Grandpa's cattle to the Fort Worth stockyards, make a quick buck. I, did, I just couldn't believe it. $5 to sit on a cow. I mean, I, I knew I grew up in western Oklahoma, and so I was lucky that... I don't know if I was lucky. Uh, I was basically born around cows and so for me that was like wow what an experience it's almost a culture shock within my own culture yes i could see that for sure 
So what we need to do is just get one of Papa Floyd's cows, go down to Fort Worth, profit, come back, pay off student loans, take a nap. I'm here for that. That sounds fine to me. I didn't do a ton. Uh, I guess the last thing I did was that magic draft with Brian and Dan and Dakota and a bunch of other people. And that was fun. I didn't do well, but it was good. It was a good time. So that was nice playing uh, magic in a group again. And it wasn't at a store. It was at a home. But it's a little more comfortable that way, I think, for everyone. Yeah, so it was pretty pretty busy, but a very good two weeks. Now, I'm looking forward to taking care of Delton this week and appreciate the sacrifices he is making in order to make sure that we don't have children. <laughs> yes, I'm doing my best. I'm trying, okay? The first time didn't work, <laughs> and I'm trying. He's trying so hard. That's okay. I think that's kind of all that's happened here recently. Uh, let's get into the first beer of the episode before we jump into the game. So this first beer is from Roughtail Brewing Co., which is now right down the road from us. This is Dill or No Deal. It is a pickle goza, and the label is hilariously a pickle version of Howie Mandel that's kind of creepy and slightly too phallic. In a yeah. weird alien why, way. Why does he have like a slit down the his forehead? Yeah, it's I, a little. It does make it very phallic whenever you. Thank you. Look I'm, at like. I'm that. glad it's not just me that sees that. I will validate you. So this is super super clear, not very carbed. It almost looks like apple juice in color or pickle juice. Pickle juice is always more green. It smells like pickles, pretty strongly. It does smell like pickles. Uh, this reminds me of working at the movie theater. People would buy no speak. We we talked. I talked about you know paying five dollars to pet a cow. People would pay a dollar for a cup of pickle juice. I'm like, oh, absolutely. Oh my god. So it's fixing to hit your jaw. Get ready. There it is. <laughs> it's, oh my god. It's very smooth. <gasps> Why do I feel that sourness in my eardrum? It's like, very sweet it's down my ear canal. But that like pickle tart sour. Pickle juice flavor hits and it just tingles where your jaw, you know, that like jaw joint. Oh. You know, people used to put pickle juice in their Pepsi out in uh, the theater in Western Oklahoma. That was a really common thing. It was half pickle juice, half Pepsi. This tastes like half pickle juice, half beer. It basically is. And honestly, though, on a hot day, this is pretty damn refreshing. And I like pickles. This is one I want with popcorn because I used to like dipping popcorn into pickle juice. Oh, we can arrange that. It deflates it, but it's delicious, so. Did you ever have salty frogs? I have. They're a little too much. Ah. Yeah. It's not enough pickle juice or lime juice or whatever and too much just salt and ice. I feel like the the proportions were wrong for me. I don't know if salty frogs are a thing elsewhere, but especially here, it's pickle juice, lime juice, and salt for a snow cone. Yeah, in shaved ice. I just always felt like it wasn't enough juice or... I would get the closest thing because a lot of places don't have that now. What? But they'll have something similar and it's never as good. They don't have salty frogs? The last few places I've seen have not. I am so sad for kids these days. You'll have to check the one here by the house next week when I make you go get me a snow cone. I will go get you a snow cone, yes. I will. Man, I am so sad. I'm almost grieving right now. There's no salty frogs anymore. That's okay. (laughs) You'll be fine. But yeah, it's a good beer. I like it. Roughtail always makes good stuff. And if you like pickles and sour beers, uh, this is definitely a good beer for you. With that beer cracked open and part of it down the hatch, let's move into the game. Oh, here's the door. Uh, uh. It's straight ahead. It's 
It's a game. So the game for this episode is the Oracle of Delphi. I've always pronounced it Delphi. Some people say Delphi. I don't know the true pronunciation. I'm going to keep saying Delphi. So the Oracle of Delphi. No, it's Delphi. No, that's not right. Delphi. Sure. The designer is Stefan Feld. Illustrations and graphics are Dennis Lohausen. Layout and 3D shots is Andreas Risch. Realization, Ralph Brune. And translation, Martin Zeeb. This is originally from Hall Games, but it is distributed to the U.S. through TMG, Tasty Minstrel Games. So the Oracle of Delphi is a game, I think the best descriptor is pick up and deliver. That's not all you're doing, but it's a lot of what you're doing in the game. Essentially, you're going to have a boat, and there's a lot of different moving parts, but uh, the quick and dirty of it is you roll some dice. Those dice allow you to do different things based on their color. You can modify their color in different ways, but then every action you do in the game, whether it be moving, picking up goods, delivering goods, picking up statues, dropping off statues, anything like that, it all depends on the color of the die you utilize for that action. You're going to be picking up things, delivering things. Everybody has an equal number of the same goals to achieve, and the first person to achieve the goals and then move their boat back to an adjacent space to the Zeus token is going to be the winner. And then, of course, there's tiebreakers. And that's really the simple gist of the game. You're going to be moving around, picking up stuff, dropping stuff off, trying to find a way to do your actions the most efficiently you can, as well as utilize your few resources very efficiently to uh, get things done quickly. So I guess it's kind of also a bit of a race. It is, and I really like the theme of it. You know, you're, you're playing an oracle who is, you know, making sacrifices to gods to try to get your way, and I feel like that really plays out in the mechanics. Well, you're not an oracle. You're not? No, a character's not an oracle. What am I, then? We are, the ro- when you roll the dice, you're consulting the oracle of, Del- of Delphi. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of what I, like, you're, it has the theme of the oracle, yes. I guess. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we're not an oracle, but you're consulting the oracle, and I really like that because, you know, just like, I know we've talked about psychics, we've talked about, you know, mysticism before, like, but with the oracle, like an oracle is not someone who is 100% accurate. They give, you know, feelings, they give readings, they give interpretations. And I really feel like that this theme really matches that because you can modify dice to some extent, but you are making plans based on the roll of the dice. And you can modify it a little bit, like you're consulting the oracle, you can make it go a little bit in your way, or you're pleasing this god, so it goes a little more in your favor this way. But ultimately, fate is in the hands of the dice. For sure, the dice are going to define everything you do. And like you said, you can change those some. But that is kind of a fun, I guess, thematic tie-in of the Oracle tells you this info, but I think this one could it really needs to be this way. She didn't tell me the full information, which I find to be funny. Random... Uh, historical tangent. I learned this in college when studying ancient Greek culture. Uh, the Oracle of Delphi not only drank substances that would be slightly hallucinogenic in nature, but they also have discovered that in the room, the interior room where she would stay before giving any kind of reading or uh, giving her, you know, I guess the Oracle, I, I'm trying to think of the term, when she's like, here's what's going to happen, blah, her prediction. Her soothsaying. There you go. Uh, there's a little crack down in there, and in that room, some of the like 
noxious gases from the internal parts of the mountain leak into that chamber. So she'd be huffing and puffing on, you know, the fumes, the smoke of the gods and drinking some fluid and not be in her right mind at the actual, like the actual Oracle, which is pretty cool, I think. Pretty neat. Good explanation there. Uh, But yeah, so there's some historical evidence to that, which I find to be uh, fascinating. Yeah, so the game is going to go in rounds. It's going to go one person doing all their actions, the next person doing all of their actions. Uh, One thing that I enjoy and I think is kind of fun is that you're being attacked by a titan the whole time. It kind of adds to the mythological feeling of this game because not only are you fighting a hydra or a minotaur or whatever on the board to help, you know, achieve those goals, but then there's suddenly, for some reason, there's just a titan attacking you all at the end of every round all the time and giving you wound cards. I really like the wound cards. Can I talk about those? Yeah. So, okay, so if you if you get six wound cards of any color, then you have to take a turn off and heal. Or if you get three wound cards of the same color, you have to take off around the heal. I like the imagery because I think about it as, you know, if I get, if I'm in a fight, if I'm in a street fight, I've never been in a street fight. I kind of want to one day just experience it, but I'm not going to instigate anything because I don't want to go to jail. But I think about it, if I get into a fight and I have six blows, if I have like one to the head, like two to the arm, like someone kicks one leg twice and one leg once, like I'm going to be pretty beat up and I'm probably going to have to set something out. But you give me three blows to the kneecap, I'm out. So that's why I kind of I, I kind of looked at it. Like if it's three colors, you're hitting your kneecap and you're out, or if it's six blows all over the body, you're out. And that makes sense. I, I like that you add in your own like little thematic reasonings for why some of this stuff is the way that it is, you rules-wise. three shillelaghs to the shin, you're dead. I don't know about dead, but... <laughs> <laughs> your leg's you're, dead. <laughs> you're definitely off for a turn. But yeah, you'll be running around the board doing that stuff, avoiding this damage. You'll be gaining the favor of the gods during the game and utilizing their special abilities, which are very, very powerful. You'll even be taking cards from the Oracle or drawing cards where the Oracle gives you one free action for the turn for whatever color that card is. Uh, One thing I like, so when I first got the game all set up and going, the red and the pink are way too close together in color. Like, extremely close together. But all the colors have a symbol that corresponds to them. And something that I liked is there were two sides of the tiles that we used to build the board. So the board has uh, hexagonal spaces for you to move. Like your boat can move three hexes. And then if you spend a favor token, you can move another. And for example, if you want to move using the yellow die, you have to end your turn on a yellow space or end your movement. So that's why you need to use the favor token sometimes if you want to go a little further rather than a little shorter. But something that I enjoyed about the modular tiles is not only can you build your own custom board kind of move everything around but one side of the tiles the spaces are outlined in a color the other side have a very large symbol of that color symbol in the middle so this is a really good thing for people that have issue with colors is and Haley, i don't think you saw this but if you flip those tiles over instead of being just a ring of red it's actually the the symbol of red in red in the center of that tile So people that have issues with colors or colorblindness of any kind would have an easier time distinguishing between red and pink in that case. 
what you were saying earlier as you were looking through the game that the graphic design feels a little dated. Like yes. it's a game from 2016, but you said like the the graphic design is very much you know like early board game and graphic design. That, so really for 2016, having something like that, having those color cues, having those uh, symbols that way you can identify the colors like that's kind of progressive for that time it kind of is the earliest example i can think of is ticket to ride most people don't realize it but ticket to ride has a symbol for each color and it's on all the stuff uh but that game came out in like 2010 or 2012 wasn't it i so, bought it for you for 2012 christmas so yeah t- and it was out before that mm-hmm. so ticket to ride's been around a long time it did it and i still think that it's like the shining example of how easily it can be done to help people in the accessibility range. But that is one of my critiques of Delphi. Uh, And I told this to Haley, I really enjoyed the game. I had fun playing the game. The actions aren't too complicated. It's simple. It's a theme that I enjoy, even if it's, you know, kind of lightly into the game. It's not like the theme is so heavily involved, but I still enjoy that. But one of the things is it does feel dated. For a 2016 release, Now, I don't have a list of like 2016 releases in hand. Before a 2016 game, even then, it does feel a bit dated. The graphic design and just kind of, not that the mechanics are hard or that the mechanics feel old or stale, but they do feel I'm moving across hexes, you know, where, I don't know, something about it to me feels older. It's pick up and deliver. It's moving across hexes. Mm-hmm. The graphic design reminds me a lot of you know, a lot of the other mysticism or medieval style games. Yeah. If like, you just say, show me a Euro game, the, here you go. It looks like a Euro game. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my big criticism of it. Aside from that, I do really actually like the game. Uh, we played the shorter version. Normally you have 12 tasks to complete before you can return to Zeus at the end of the game. Like Hercules. Like Hercules, his 12 labors. However, we played the shorter version where you play with eight. And you could do less than that. You can do more than that. But they recommend for your first play to do eight. And we used the recommended board setup as well, which is a little easier to navigate than some can be. And even though Delton won, I was really excited to play again. Like I could have started another game right after we ended. I mean, we won. uh, I only won by second tiebreaker. So it was a very close game. And it only took us 53 minutes for our first play. The box says 60 to 100 minutes, and it goes up to four players. So I think uh, less than an hour for two on our first play was good, and we could probably do it in like 45. I'm sure we could do all 12 labors now in less than an hour, having played it once. We probably could, yeah. But it was very fun. There's lots of different little details. I don't want to get into everything. It's not super complex. Uh, the rule book at first I thought was laid out strangely because it like leads you through setup, and it leads you to set up the board, then tells you here's how you set up the general supply. Here's the setup for the individual play area. Here's the course of play. And then here's a detail on components. So the detail on components like threw me off at first, but like you have a shield on your ship and it tells you your shield value. And this tells you the number next to your shield indicates its current strength. The shield is used as a defense against the Titan's attack, bottom of page five. And when fighting monster, page 10, action fighting monster, you can strengthen your shield by collecting. So it tells you the detail of what that is used for and references other pages. And I actually really liked that. I read through it without looking at the references, went through all of it, and then went through and actually read the actions. So if you wanted to look at this game and just read the two action pages, it's page 10 and 11. It's not hard. You just have to always have a color of dye for it to work. 
So I think that the game is uh, deceptively simple. It looks way more complicated. The rule book feels more complicated than oh, it absolutely. should be. It, it was like, when I first sat down, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a brain burner. Yeah. And then once we started playing, like by the second round, I was like, okay, I got this. I even thought that the turns were going to take forever. Yeah. I thought I was going to have AP out the butt <laughs> and it was just going to be bad. But honestly, it was like, all right, I got these three colors. I can change this color to, you know, I can change my red into a black. I think that's the correct order. And then I'll be able to move here with that, spending another favor token. And then, okay, so I'll do that. And it wasn't that hard to get into. Uh, so yeah, I enjoyed the game all in all. It feels a little dated by look. And the mechanics definitely are an older style of mechanics that have kind of fallen out. I feel like game design today in 2021 is trying to find new ways to present these same ideas. However, I still think this game is fun. I enjoyed it, and it's definitely one I'll keep around and want to play again. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So before we get into the topic of this episode, let's crack this second beer, because I think we're gonna need it. <laughs> Not really. I just, it's a, I'm going to go ahead and knock it out. Got a lot to talk about. This is also from Rufftail Brewing Co. This is first off, Pop Pop. A Cryo Pop Double IPA. What is Cryo Pop? I don't know what that means. That's where they keep Walt Disney's body. Cryo Pop is a trademark of Yakima Chief hops used with permission. So I wonder if it's a special hop. It even has a TM. Hmm. But this is a... Double IPA, but it's an imperial double IPA at, I think, 8.5%. I don't know how much uh, the deal or no deal. They don't list their percentages on their cans anymore. Hmm. I can't find it. They had it in the, in the store. That one was like 6 or 4.5, maybe 5%. But I know this one was 8.5% because that was, was one of the selling factors. stout. I think it's like 8.5, something I, like that. I think so. It's got a very cloudy, almost like a really uh, pulpy orange juice mixed with i don't know something it smells like orange juice too it kind of does it's a lot thicker than the uh, dill pickle goza it goes down smooth though it's like a creamy orange juice it kind of is yeah it's almost got that almost like a cream ale feel to it mm -hmm. but it's got a high hop content however being that it's a double ipa and imperial the amount of malt in it balances out that hop a lot to where it just tastes like a really like a high hopped but not to the level of a ridiculously pungent IPA. You ever have like a melted or so whenever you have a baby shower or you have a wedding shower or you have really anything any kind of hen party in western Oklahoma they make punch but this punch is typically orange uh sherbet ice cream with Sprite. And that's what this tastes like. Yep. You take the orange herb ice cream, you put the Sprite in, you let it melt, so you have to prepare it like an hour and a half in advance. Yep. And that's what this tastes like. It tastes like the orange sherbet ice cream uh, punch. You know, that's really the best I can come up with. Man, I should have went to that baby shower today, so I could have had some. <laughs> right? Uh, no, it's really, really good, though. I mean, super good beer. Nice and clean. It's just a solid, heavy IPA. Someone spiked the fruit punch at the baby shower. I'll take it. So the topic for today's episode is a little bit heavier of a topic, I think. Haley came up with it. I thought it was a good one, which is religion in board games. 
Uh, religion is something normally you're told not to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, unless you're on a podcast, that is. So we're getting around that today. But we just wanted to talk about religion in board games because even if you don't think religion is prevalent in board games, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> That's the official opinion. Uh, but there are also, religion. There are religion. There is religion. And the thing about it, though, is that it presents itself in many different ways in board games. So the Oracle of Delphi takes a very mythological approach into its theming. Yes, the theme is very, like, I hate using the term pasted on, but it's kind of pasted on, where it's not embedded into it. I disagree in that. I I disagree. I, I feel like it's very much a component of it. I would say it's 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 not completely pasted on, but it's not completely like the game was built with this theme in mind necessarily. You know what I mean? I feel yeah. like the, I feel like there's a middle ground there where yeah. this game lives. Yeah, because like when you 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 can move stuff around, like you can pick up and deliver. Multiple games have that, but just the the things like the the offerings yeah. and you know pleasing the gods, making offerings to the gods, so that way they give you favors. Like that part, I feel like is kind of woven into the theme myself. Okay. But, Myself. No, that's fine. But this theme is very much the mythological take, right? And there's other games that take a big mythological approach to religion in their game. So another example, even though not done, uh, you know, I'm going to throw out the big criticism of it, is Rising Sun. Rising Sun is built off of Japanese mythology, but it also uses a fake monkey god from Wikipedia because they didn't do their research or hire a consultant to do it correctly. Shame on you. We've talked about that in the Rising Sun episode. But then some games approach things from a much lesser uh, mythological aspect and approach and approach it more from the forward-facing like part of religion. And I feel like something like Notre Dame is a little more, you know, you're trying to please the, I mean, how many, we always make the joke of pleasing the Pope. Yeah. Is like, uh, that's an entire category of board games. Yeah. Oh yeah, we talked about. I think that you and I just talked about that on our own the other night. We did. So, what were all the games that were pleasing the Pope theme? We so we've got Notre Dame. Uh, there's a little bit in Coimbra. Uh, we talked about. You're like right in the way for some of them. I think. I think Trois, Trois. is something has some religion involved for the church. You've got uh, Fresco has a bishop you can please. Uh, Crusaders is you know the Crusades was Catholic Church involved doing things. For the name of the church. I mean, you've got, uh, I'm trying to see on our shelves. We had a whole list that we had like this game and that game and this game and that game and over here and over there. And it's a lot. But you know something that I've noticed with uh, like the Christian theme hmm. or the pleasing the Pope or Catholic, Christian, whatever, mm-hmm. Western religions is that it's more about the people within the religion rather than the mysticism or the spiritualism. That's very true. It's always about the bishops or the Pope or the priests or the the clergy or you're donating to the church, but it's never actually about what that about the deity organization is about. Which, you know, when you, when you look at board game themes, a lot of the ones that do use the mysticism, we, we tend to think of as, you know, uh, mythological things that happened in the past, things people used to believe. But really when it comes to like, let's say Norse mythology, I know two people who subscribe and are a part of the Norse religion. Like that's still alive it's, today it's coming back i know uh, one of my cousins is pagan like he engages in pagan rituals and that's part of his religion and so you know i think that we we kind of have a 
uh, we need to be mindful in game because we, we oftentimes think about these you know, old religions as something in the past and something that you can kind of put into games. We also have to remember people still practice these things. We kind of have to be mindful of that. Oh, I think so for sure. And that's one thing too with like the Oracle of Delphi. That's a huge, huge cultural center of not only Greek mythology, but just Greece itself. You know what I mean? Because I believe if if I'm correct, and now given I haven't I haven't been in college in a while. We talked about this stuff forever Four ago. Four years. It's been a long time. We're old. But um I'm completely blanking on well the Oracle where the Oracle of Delphi is. Delphi. Well, no, there's a you know what? <laughs> We're gonna have to Google this now because it's gonna drive me nuts not being able to remember. Okay, so she was in the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, but there was another name for like the area or the region, and I can't seem to find it. So I'm probably just being a dingus and not remaining, not remembering. Maybe it was that it was on Mount Parnassus. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Uh, anyway, the Temple of Apollo. So that location around the Temple of Apollo, they had you know, different buildings and different things going on. It was like a a, a little, like a small town essentially around it, right? At that cultural center, and I believe that this is there, I could be wrong, but there's something called the Umphalos, which the way we learned in school was that this was something, it was like the belly button of the world in the Greek world. This is the center of the Greek world, right? And the Pythia, which is the Oracle of Delphi, she was known as the Pythia, it kind of was a a thing that she was there, almost like you could say she was the womb of the world. All life is going to be coming from this area, and she's bringing this knowledge. It was a very important cultural center and has a lot of meaning in Greek mythology, but that has carried into modern Greek world, where like this is things that'd be taught in their textbooks, right? This is an important site, an important thing. So using the Oracle at Delphi as a theme you still want to be respectful because not only yes, it's a mythology in a way that majority of people don't look at this as a legitimate religion that was going on, that the Greek gods didn't exist. You know, that's a thing that I would say that's majority opinion in the world. But there are probably people that still believe it. And that doesn't mean it's not culturally relevant and culturally important to likely everybody in Greece, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Even if it's not a religion that they abide by, mm-hmm. then it definitely does. Like you said, it, it it has its significance in culture, has its significance in you know belief systems and history. And so it's still things we need to be mindful of. Because I feel like, and you know, this is just my outside looking in, I, I, I do feel like that a lot of what are seen non-Western religions yeah. are, are kind of more used, like the mysticism is used as a mechanic. For sure. And not necessarily that can be a bad thing at all times, even though I don't understand why like the, the Christian themes aren't used in the same way. Like it's all the, like I said, the mechanics of the people rather than the mechanics of the mysticism. But it's, it, it can be an okay thing, but we just have to be mindful of that still, just because these religions aren't practiced by 50 million people around the world doesn't mean that they're still not significant and should be treated with respect. I agree with that completely. And I think that's part of the reason that we don't see a Christian-based Western religion used often. And if you do, it's 99% of the time Catholic. 
Mm-hmm. But I think that's because how many board games come from Europe and Catholicism, I believe, still far outnumbers, you know, even Lutheranism, Calvinism, the early Protestant religions. I'm pretty sure that uh, Catholicism way outweighs that. So it's something easy to use. And also Catholicism has been around long enough that the weird aspects that don't exist in other religions are things you can use as mechanics without really risking pushing too many buttons Mm -hmm. from a European perspective. Because they can say, we're going to donate money here to the Pope and we're going to do this and we're going to go here and we're going to build a new church. And it's like, cool, that's all positive stuff. But they never get into anything else past that. Like the game Crusaders, Thy Will Be Done, I think that's what the total name is, Thy Will Be Something. Uh, I think it's Thy Will Be Done. Crusaders is the closest thing to like the, a negative aspect of a Christian-based religion that we have in board games because it's talking about the Crusades, which were atrocities, you know, held in the name of the Catholic Church. And even then, you play that game, and that's it's done so lightly that you don't think of that. It doesn't bring that to light. You don't go, oh, okay, we're raiding Byzantium now. We're just Christians killing Christians. Cool. Oh, we're taking over and slaughtering all these people in the Middle East? Fun. Like, that's not what the game does. So it circumvents that whole issue. And I feel like that's how it's presented in games a lot. They go for the softer side because the history is long enough that I feel like they can do it without as much worry. But also, you know, when you do that, I know we're kind of getting a little deeper into the Mm -hmm. topic and kind of going off to the side a little bit. When you do that, you know, it it can devalue what happened. No, 100%. It's, it's kind of picking and choosing the history. Like, oh, we're, we're not going to talk about the slaughtering. We're going to talk about, oh, we're going to find the, the riches and we're going to find the missus. Like, and I, I know it's hard. Like, you can't have a board game. It's like, I'm going to have an entire culture in this board game because that would be problematic too. Yes. We're, we're just kind of using this as a discussion point right now. Because like you said, like with the, the Christian side, like, uh, you know, it's with that one, it's picking you know, what parts of the religion we want to talk about with the Catholicism is talking about the rituals. And then you have uh, what we all experience as a little kid and what our friend Cody still has, which is walking t- to Bethlehem, which is a, a Ameritrash board game that was standard issue to the Christian kids in Western Oklahoma back in the day where you roll dice and you hear Bible stories. Fun. It was really great. So see, one of the things that when you were saying, you know, we're, we're skipping the, a lot of the board games don't mention the atrocities and the heavy dark stuff, because obviously that's, you know, all cultures across the world have things like that, that won't make for a fun game. They won't make for something people want to hear about 90% of the time, but they are important things that have happened that need to be studied, understood and avoided in the future. Right. That's, that's, I think we all can pretty much agree that every culture has something in it that we've gone, oh, that's not good. Everybody does. However, I feel like part of the reason that people don't put it in board games is because the minute a board game decides to take something seriously, the lens in which people view it changes. And I think that's a, it's a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing because the minute a board game approaches a very serious topic, this is not religious-based, but I'm going to use it as an example, which is going to be, uh, shoot, I'm completely bank- blanking on the name now. It's the Underground Railroad board game mm-hmm. from uh, Academy Games. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't think of the full name of the game, but it's the Underground Railroad. 
when you do something so serious, people's view shifts to where, okay, I th- this game better do it right. And I think that's a correct outlook. But this also points out that maybe we need to have that outlook more often. Yes. We need to not allow people to skirt the real issues or pick and choose the light little happy things because it makes for a more fun game when in reality you're now, you know, doing a broad stroke over this theme that probably needs to have a little bit more maturity woven in. And I don't know how true that needs to be. I don't know if that that would be a true positive turn in the board game world. But when it comes to games with mature themes, when done correctly, I get a very big, um, I, I get a lot of like joy from that because I want to learn Freedom yes. Underground Railroad. That's what it's called. That's it. Freedom. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Pax Pamir. It's a, it's a very serious topic that could be done in a very bad way. But I feel like the way in which the Pax Premier Second Edition has been done educates you and teaches you. You still get to have fun in a game, but it approaches the theme in a way with the artwork and the just everything in a way in which I'm educated and learning. And generally, when I leave that game, I'm like, wow, this makes me feel this way. That feels to be the correct way you need to be feeling after this game. And I just think that it would it would require board games to take more thought and more hardcore dedication toward design and weaving the theme into it. And that it's, it's just something that you're not going to make money. It's not putting out games fast enough. It's not being able to make all these games. Cause if one designer is sucked down like Pax Pamir, where I, I want to say Cole Worley said it took him like two or three years to redesign that game. And that's essentially all he did aside from root in that time. Right. I feel like other games could do that with the religious theme. You could make a game truly introducing religious concepts uh, with all of their pitfalls and high points, but it would have to be done correctly. And on top of that, people just need to start viewing all the games under the same lens as something that is going to dive that deep. If we're going to put in, you see very few games making light of the Christian God. Correct. But there's a lot of games that make light of other deities. I just think we need to step back and ask ourselves why that is. We just need to make a lot of games that make light of the Christian religion. And then it'll be even. Just like walking to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem or whatever. Yeah, we'll make it even. No, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. That is something you see a lot. I mean, there's there's an issue people talk about in the board game industry of... I can't think of the term that they use, but it's like you're making a game themed off of an a- an Asian culture and you're using some over the top ridiculously made up font that look it looks mm-hmm. quote unquote Asian, so they're using that and it's kind of like that, right? That's kind of how it feels for a lot of the religious themed games, but we never have any of the Christian persuasion. Right. I mean, I mean, you could take something like a feast for Odin it's called a feast for Odin. Uh, I don't know exactly what time frame that's based in, but at a certain point, ninety percent of all Vikings were Christian. So you could make an argument. However, <laughs> most people won't, you know, see or think about that. So I don't know. It's a really tough one. I think the bottom line is, you know, whenever you're working on a theme that has to do any with anything regarding someone's actual culture with actual history, yeah, get a consultant. Get somebody who 
was raised in that culture, who is in, who knows that culture, you know, pick their brain, hire them, pay them, but, you know, consult with them. Make sure that your approach is from sense of way because you can have the best intentions. And you could your only intention could be, I want to make a fun board game that people will enjoy with a theme that I like. That's great. But we have to be respectful in the process. And then if you can't, make the theme about plants. Can't go wrong with plants, man. There's a lot of good plant games out there. That's true. Bosque photosynthesis. What was the potato game you got me? Plantopia. Plantopia. When in doubt, plants. You Gardening. Arboretum. Arboretum. Yeah. There's ways around it. But plants yes, and trains. I, I think what you said is a good way to sum everything up. With that being said, let's move into the question of the episode so we can wrap this up. And now, join us for a Malt House Games podcast special bite-sized question. The question of the episode. What philosophy would you want as a theme to a board game? That's a really good question and a very tough question to get uh, to get a good answer for. Uh, what's your answer? So I've been kind of thinking about this for like the last hour and a half since I thought of the question. I think what I would like is a Kantian deontology themed board game. So Immanuel Kant, his uh, Kantian deontology was all about maximizing the good. That's not necessarily, from what I understand, now again, this is, it's been a while since I've been an undergrad. I graduated like, oh God, seven years ago. So I might be getting this wrong, but from what I remember, it's all about maximizing the good. Kantian deontology is all about maximizing the good. doesn't matter what the end result is. It's basically as long as your actions are moral and strive towards the good. Like, that's the moral thing to do. So, here's my game, Delton. You ready? Go for it. So, in the game, the goal is to maximize the good. Whatever you do, it's doing good deeds. However... There's also a end of scoring thing for the person who does the most bad while doing good. Because like we were talking about a minute ago, you can have good intentions and have very poor outcomes. That's very true. So that's one of the caveats in the game is that there's also points for who does who has the the best good intentions to bad outcomes ratio. Perfect. What about you, Delty? I'm gonna say Epicureanism. Oh, God, what is that? So, Educate me. So Epicurus, Epicureanism, is a system, I'm, I pulled it up that way I could read a true definition, is a system of philosophy based on the teachings of Epicurus, founded around 307 BC. It teaches that the greatest good is to seek modest pleasures in order to attain a state of tranquility, freedom from fear, and absence from bodily pain. This combination of states is held to constitute happiness in its highest form, and so Epicureanism can be considered a form of hedonism, although it differs in its concept of uh, happiness as the absence of pain and in its advocacy of a simple life. So essentially, it's living for all the good, living for pleasurable things, and living to be pain-free and all that stuff. So it's a version of hedonism, which hedonism is essentially the meaning of life is to live for pleasure, which was something that Pythagoras was known for, him and his weird Pythagorean uh, or Pythagorean triangle life. Yeah, he just he had a weird, he basically was a cult leader. Uh, is essentially how you could look at it. And all they did all day was like drink and have sex and stuff. And the whole thing is there's a there's a story of him being reincarnated and it was as a rooster. Because what is a more hedonistic, pleasure filled life than a rooster? You're just going to have sex with all the hens and eat all the food and bugs, and that's your whole life. 
That's why he liked triangles, because he'd try any angle to get wow. pleasure in life. Wow. <laughs> yes, but Epicureanism is the, I, I think that's the good one, because it's, it's a moderate, it's a moderate approach to the very, you know, to hedonism. It's a mod- moderate approach to hedonism. I always say we're hedonists. I don't know. Live life for the pleasure of life. What the hell else is it for? <laughs> there you go. That's the I, board game. I don't know how it's going to work, but that's it. I love that. Go ahead and start designing now. We, we'll make it work. We'll make it work. But yes, I think that that's going to wrap all the stuff up we need for this episode. We need to do our Patreon. I almost said podcast. Our Patreon shout outs today. So thank you to our Patreon patrons, Allison, Alan, Jesse, Catherine, Cliff, and Jennifer. Thank you all so much for supporting us on patreon.com slash Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. Your support helps us improve our podcast, keeps us going, and shows us that you enjoy what we're doing, which is the main reason we keep doing this. <laughs> we enjoy it, but also others enjoy it, which helps. Because we're hedons. Because we're hedons. We like the pleasure of it. <laughs> Give me the dopamine fix, please. Thanks. Yeah, so thank you all so much for being Patreon subscribers. If you want to be like them, head to patreon.com slash Malthouse Games, or you can go to our website, malthousegames.com. You can check out all the content that we've covered on there, uh, links to everything, and at the bottom of the page should have a link to our Patreon as well. You can make sure to follow us on all social media at Malthouse Games. You can find me personally at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K, even though I pretty much never post on my personal page anymore. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. If you have a topic you want us to cover, a question for us, whether to cover on the show or just in general, or any kind of comments, concerns, whatever it may be, you can send that to contact at malthousegames.com. That is our email for the podcast. We also plan to do something lighter next time. I know we did a really heavy topic today. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we could have made a whole dissertation out of that. I just feel like it's a topic that we've not done and I think we're comfortable enough on the microphone after 97 episodes that it's one we can have a discussion on and given the only concern is like I want to keep it respectful, you know, as well as I feel like as a listener and listeners you can always let us know what you think. Uh, They have no clue where we stand on anything in this regard. And I feel like coming from that place of uh, unless they know us personally, they know of like we can we can come from it with a relatively unbiased view, or at least it sounds that way. Unless they Google me. That's true. And that's what I want. Right. Yeah. I want to be able to talk about this, but I don't want people saying, oh, well, they think this. And so then that suddenly has skewed the the view. So I feel like this was a good episode. Because we could discuss this conversation and us being who we are, we can discuss it from a nice outside, uh, I don't want to say viewpoint, an outside position of I'm talking about this without my own involvement in this current moment, right? I'm not talking about anything I believe. I'm talking about all of this. So I feel like that was a good, it was a good space to have that talk. And to boil it down, we want you to hire a consultant. Yeah. Be respectful. Yeah. When in doubt, stick to plants. Yeah. And uh, get some good beer, play good board games, have fun, all that good stuff. Be hedonistic. Be hedonistic and just enjoy life. I think that that's everything. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Follow us on social media, blah, 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 blah. Send me an email. That 
kind of stuff. We need it. <laughs> if you want to add me on Switch so we can play some games this next week while I'm down and out with my second snip snap, then the make sure to message me. me. Yeah, my the second me, as Haley keeps saying. <laughs> but I think that's going to wrap it all up. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 97 of the Malthouse Games Podcast. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.